What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Abira. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different, complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me. It was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... No, no, that's actually funny. That's, and it's funny. I'll tell you why. That's a good one, Matt. No, I'll tell you why. Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I am Matt Ralston. And I'm William Noguera. Today we're going to talk about a really psycho killer named Leonard Lake. And it's one of the craziest stories I've ever heard. There's just so much weirdness going on with this. It's truly stranger than fiction. Um, I want to remind everyone to... Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Death Row Diaries and check out our Patreon page at Death Row Diaries where you'll get bonus episodes. Uh, Bill, before we start, you're calling from your new prison and the, well, tell us about your situation right now. Well, the system sucks is what the fucking situation is. I mean, I'm in... I mean, this GTL system, like GTL made a contract with the California Department of Corrections, and they paid them, these guys, millions of dollars to give us these tablets and give us these phone services. The phone service sucks. After 1 o'clock, it cuts out. After 6 o'clock, you can't hear the people. Anybody you're talking to, it sounds like you're underwater. And if I sound a little pissed off, it's because I am. I mean, I have better service on death row. So now I'm outside. I'm in the Corcoran where... 4B1L is where I'm at, but the building has these small concrete yards that are part of the day room. It's 15-foot walls with razor wire. It's 104 degrees out here, and I'm sitting out here like a jackass talking. So if I caught off a little bit, you know what? what's the problem. 104 degrees, yeah. I guess there was one good thing about San Quentin, which is you're near the water. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was always nice over there. This is a freaking hellhole. But I digress. We're talking about Leonard Lake, who was a piece of garbage, serial killer, but one of the most unique killers because this guy was really bent. And I'm sure the audience is going to love to hear about this guy and his little buddy, Charles Ng. Yeah, so basically this guy just devolves into a torturous I, I guess he likes to keep women captive and torture them but I don't know where to start should we start at the beginning yeah I mean we should give you out a little bit of, this guy's name is Leonard Thomas Lake he was born in 1945 in San Francisco California um, look this guy had a, a multitude of names Leonard Hill Alan Dre Robin Sipley, Leonard Hill, Charles Gunner, Paul Costner. He took on the identities of the people that he killed. So a lot of the people that I named her are his victims. Uh, this guy had never had previous convictions for murder or anything else. He was once convicted of auto theft. Uh, so this guy is not the kind of guy that you say, okay, you know, he was, you could tell he was going to be a serial killer. Look, he... You know, he was not a stupid guy. But several people think that he was actually a bright guy. Uh, he lived in San Francisco for a number of years. And his childhood starts off a little weird. And look, these so-called experts that you hear talk about serial killers always talk about, well, it's very obvious this guy became this because of the abuse he had as a child. Look, you know, I've said this before, and I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I'm going to do it again. That's a bunch of hogwash. These guys are wired to be this way. 
And with this particular guy, you know, as I mentioned, he was born in San Francisco, California. And at an early age, six years of age, his parents separate. But that is not a prerequisite for becoming a serial killer because your parents uh, separate. Happens to millions of kids around the country. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. Serial killers. So this clown, he, from a very early age, went to live after his parents separate, obviously, uh, with his maternal grandmother. And, you know, he right away began at this photography studio he had as a child at his house. He was a six-year-old kid, and his first subject is his sister. And he's obsessed with taking pictures of her nude. So you tell me, Matt, I mean, come on. From the get-go, this guy is twisted. He's six years old, nothing's happened to him. Suddenly, he wants to start taking pictures of his sister in the nude. Well, I heard that his grandmother was actually encouraging him to do that, but I'm wondering where that information came from. Well, that's what I'm gathering, too. Uh, this guy supposedly has a grandmother who encourages him to take his pictures of his little sister nude, and he becomes obsessed with it. And then, he reportedly, he begins to extort sexual acts from his sister. So this guy, look, he's a little creep. Look, let's call it what it is. The guy's six, seven years old, and he's extorting sexual acts from his sister. He's a creep. This is what he is. Um, at early age, he's already collecting mice and killing them. In a lot of cases, he's putting small animals in solvent and in chemicals to dissolve them. And later on, of course, he does that to some of his victims. So, look, this guy is wired this way. He's already flexing that particular tick that he has that I always speak of or that impulse and it's it's like a guy who's a kleptomaniac can't stop stealing it's this is the kind of guy this guy is uh, so I mean look already at an early age he's exhibiting really creepy tendencies I mean, I, I mean come on Matt have you ever when you were six years old were you thinking about taking pictures of any women, especially your sister? No, I was kind of scoping them out from afar, but I didn't have any uh, intention of doing anything. But I mean, do you think that his grandmother actually encouraged him, or do you think that that's something that he disseminated? I think that's something that probably they got from somebody that said his grandmother probably encouraged him. This is the problem with some of these cases. We don't have the serial killer to speak to him anymore. Um, and usually he's not going to tell you the truth. He's going to put a little bit of the blame on somebody else, a parent, you know, abuse, something. They like to do that because it kind of gives them an excuse to why they act the way they do. Um, I think it's all him. I, I don't think his grandmother had anything to do with this. That maybe she turned a blind eye to it, that she was not as vigilant as she should have been is one thing. That she actually encouraged them, I think is a crock of shit. But, however... Look, this guy goes through life in the first part of his life, and there are no red flags. You know, he attends Balboa High School. He's a pretty good student. And then he enlists in the Marine Corps. He actually serves two tours of duty in Vietnam as a radar electronics technician. So he's not a dumb guy. But then in, in that period there, he is diagnosed with schizoid personality disorder we've seen this a lot okay you and i have been doing this case now for we've done over a hundred cases and we always hear this kind of stuff and back in the 60s we know that guys to get out of work would go to the doctor and say i hear voices or i hear this because it's a way for them not to go in the field so is it true did this guy really have these this personality disorder i don't think so i believe like in many, in prison we do it. We know that if you go to the doctor and you tell them, I'm hearing voices, you're going to be excused from work detail. You're going to be excused from going to school. And they can't mark it against you. This is what's happening in the 60s, I believe. That he told them he heard voices, that he feels like hurting himself, and right away he is diagnosed, because psychiatrists love to diagnose people. Of course, he's suffering from a disorder. Bottom line is that he has supposedly has a delusional breakdown and 
he received psychotherapy and he's medically discharged from the Marine Corps in 1971. Is it true? I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, that's how people get disability coverage right now. That's people living in tents all over the state of California. All you have to do, from what I've heard, is say that you hear voices and act a little weird, and you'll start getting a check every month. It's not a big check, but it's, uh, unfortunately, it's something that people abuse all the time. Yeah, well, I, I hear voice, I hear Matt's voice every freaking day, so, I mean, I should get a check, right? But yeah, this, this is what I'm talking about. It doesn't take long for people to figure this stuff out. Among the, the Marines, hey, you don't want to go in there in Vietnam and go up against these guys that are just slaughtering your, your partners. You see it. What's the way out? I hear voices. Now you're medically discharged. So I believe that's what happened. But look, he gets out. He starts a life. He goes to San Jose State University, but he drops out. And he becomes a hippie. Look, this is the, you know, the, the 19, late 70s. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, late 60s, early 70s. The hippie lifestyle is, is really happening. Uh, and he starts, funny enough, since he likes to take pictures of naked women, he marries a woman and he starts, you know, making amateur pornography. And of course, she finds out divorces him, but he is obsessed with sex, pornography. It's, it's something that, this wasn't something that because of abuse, this is just something he's really enamored with. And, you know, bondage and sadomatch or whatever the hell it is called. I mean, this guy is a bad guy, he's a bad seed. And from a very early age, you can see that he has these tendencies. You know, he goes to a huge, uh, the Greenfield Ranch. And there, it's, it's up by, uh, by uh, Chapella in North Eureka, California. This is like wooded area. And there, again, he's doing pornographic films. He's um, telling people that nuclear disaster is coming, the Holocaust is coming. And he begins to you know, make these bunkers in order to protect himself and who he loves from this nuclear holocaust. Now, we've heard this thing before. We've heard guys on TV all the time. What do they call those guys, Matt, that are always on television talking about the doomsday guys? And this is the kind of guy this guy is. He's, he's twisted. I don't think he's hearing voices. I think this guy is just one of those guys that you talk to him at first, you think he's normal, you get to know the guy, and you realize this guy's twisted. Yeah, as far as his doomsday prepper survivalist thing, that's not all that uncommon in and of itself. There's a lot of guys out there like that. Are they normal? Mm, no, not really, but they're not dangerous, you know, so... Um, but it's weird because I don't like when I think of the hippie thing and the doomsday prepper thing. They don't they don't really go hand in hand to me. Yeah, they really don't. And, and that's it's interesting. That you picked up on that. You're right. Usually, you know, doomsday preppers and all this stuff are usually these conservative, you know, right wing crazy people. But this guy is supposed to be a hippie. He's into pornography, but yet he's in Survivalist magazine. So he's a bit of an oddball. Yeah. So, and, and he's not an attractive guy. He's prematurely bald. Uh, and, uh, and later he'll kind of record himself doing this bizarre diatribe. And he's, he's an incel. You know what an incel is, right? Correct. But I think you should tell our audience so they know what you're talking about. Involuntarily celibate, you know, it's a new term, but this guy is a classic case of that. So they can't get laid, basically, or they have a hard time, and they really start resenting women. And, I mean, this is a textbook extreme example of that. Well, I mean, this guy, like I say, he's strange, but he's doing pornography, um, look, we've seen Jeremy, what's that freaking porn star guy? He's a freaking ugly son of a bitch, bald, fat dude. And he's, he's, having, he's doing, he's got a porn career. He's one of the, uh, you know, the hall of famers of porn. He's one of the ugliest sons of bitches in the world. So I, I don't think it has to do with how ugly this guy is. I think this guy, he just likes that. He likes what he likes and he's going to do what he's going to do. And it, it, it becomes so obvious because 
he puts an ad in a newspaper, a survivalist magazine, and who who answers? Freaking Charles Ning. He's looking for the same type of lifestyle. And this is 1981, so we're actually jumping ahead but actually backwards because Ning is also a guy in the Marine Corps. He is honorably discharged because of theft and desertion. Um, look, I know Charles Ning. I didn't know Lake because he killed himself. But soon as these guys meet, right away, Lake invites Charles Ning to basically go to his place and live in his cabin. And you got these two dudes in a cabin, both of them freaking weirdos, up there. One of them is in the pornography. The other one is just, look, let's just say it. He's a really creepy son of a gun. But Charles Ng is probably about one of the creepiest dudes. And not creepy like, oh, he scares people. He's just a creepy, odd son of a gun. And right away, when they get together, this spree comes along because they start talking. It's like the tool box killers, uh, Bitteker and Norse. It's the same thing. They talk really quickly. They know what they want. They recognize each other for what they are, and they go on this spree. But it should be noted that prior to Charles Ng starting the spree with Lake, Lake had already killed. You know, he had already started to kill. It wasn't women that we know of, but I'm willing to bet that there are cases, cold cases, that are not, have not been discovered, that are attributed to Lake. You don't just start killing at that pace, even if you've already killed men, when you're in a bunker, you're raping, you're torturing. You have these women in this particular pattern unless you've done it before. At some pace, so between 1981 and 1984, when they started this spree, um, I am willing to bet that Lake had rapes and he had murders. Was he was he living and satisfying a bit of that through his pornography career? Absolutely. Was it enough to make him stop or not kill and rape and torture? Absolutely not. That was just like that little snack you take before dinner, and it would not stop his kick. So Charles, I mean, this guy Lake was already enjoying that he likes to kill. And he killed everybody. He killed men. He killed children. He killed infants. And he killed women. This is strange to me because it's just not an era that I'm familiar with. Can you place an advertisement, like a personal ad? Is that what it was in a survivalist magazine? Like... Hey, do you want to hang out, get together, talk about politics? And I just can't imagine anyone responding to that. Like, I wonder what the ad said. Well, I'm willing to bet the ad was a little bit more forward. It was probably something because he was a survivalist, former military, so he was probably disgruntled with the with the government, with the armed forces. So I, I'm willing to bet the article was something like, you know, survivalist looking for. Uh, like-minded people or men who are uh, have served in the military understand the military um, they misled us and uh, if you've experienced this type of uh, these feelings about being, being deserted or being left alone and not being given what we were promised by the armed forces in contact me something to that effect and that's where you, because Charles Inc. deserted and it's a compulsive thief. Uh, and we'll see how this gets them caught. Actually, him being a freaking thief is what got them caught because he's a freaking moron. Let me call you back now. Yeah, so just to go back a little bit, Ning had stolen weaponry from the armed forces. I think grenades and I heard rockets. I don't know, that sounds a little bit far-fetched. but Correct. Uh and and then he went AWOL. So he, I, I'm thinking he was on law enforcement's radar, not just a regular AWOL guy. Like, I feel like he would have gone to prison for a long time, even if none of this other stuff happened. But my point being, he's desperate. So I don't know that he was opposed to hanging out in a bunker anyway, but he he really, this is a perfect situation for him at the moment. 
Well, yeah. I remember, like I said, he's a compulsive thief. And you're right. He was caught stealing, they say, from the armory. So that could be grenades. It could be grenade launchers. It could also just be weaponry, 45s, uh, M16s. You know, this guy is not an American citizen. He's British-born Hong Kong. Um, not an American citizen. He was able to falsify paperwork to get into the armed forces, which is the Marine Corps. And there he spent a number of uh, some time there and shortly after is caught for stealing. Uh, they try to arrest him. You know, they actually do arrest him. He goes AWOL. They finally get him again. And he serves 18 months in the, the stockade in the um, the armed forces. So they did catch him, and then they just basically, you know, disarmedly discharged him. He's a piece of garbage. This, let's be honest. That's who this guy is. And then he hooks up with freaking Howdy Doody guy over here, which is Lake. And by the time that he comes back, because they knew each other a little bit prior to Charles being going to the armed forces. And then when he gets out, he goes to live with them. But Lake has already been killing. At this time, he's already murdered, well, his brother, Donald Lake, and his friend, Charles Gunner. They, he stole their money, and he stole Gunner's identity. This is what Lake does. He'll kill somebody, man, out of necessity because he wants the identification, he wants the car, or whatever else he could use. And then he keeps going. So, he's killing for gratification at the same time or later but then he's also killing just to sustain his um off the grid lifestyle as well that's kind of weird right that's not typical well it's not 100 percent typical but it is not not typical you know a, a good example are you know the night stalker he killed men too he was all over the map he was a child molester he was a uh a guy who killed women and then he killed men. It was necessity. So you have another guy like Charles Lake who also killed out of necessity. So he kills his brother, his own fresh and blood, his brother. And then he kills his best friend because he needed something they had. But when push comes to shove, him and Charles Inc. get together and this is where that spree starts of murder. Some law enforcement say he has 11 kills. It numbers actually about 25. The reason I say that is because they have positive identification of 11 people. However, they found five-gallon buckets of bones that were scattered, and the number is more like 25. And that bunker, they showed, they, they found video of some of the torture that they did. They were torturing women uh, and a number of other things they were doing there, like actually brutalizing, scaring the psychological control. This is all factions of this particular two serial killers. They like to control women. They like to rape women. They control them through rape. They sexualize control, the bunker. All these things are part of this little world they create. Basically two nerds that like to live this fantasy out and they found each other to do it. Now how did Lake get access to this bunker? He wasn't a successful guy really was he I mean he couldn't afford no. a bunker yeah the cabin belonged belonged to um, his wife's family um, in uh, Weasleyville that's a freaking I think it's Weasleyville I can't pronounce it right. yeah uh, Wilseyville and the bunker was built on her family's property just right next to the house but Again, he had the intention to do this. This is all part of this little plan that he had, this fantasy. These two clowns were living that fantasy. Yeah, these two guys are kind of... They f are fetishizing the military to a degree. Like, I think in their minds, they're, uh, they're these tough guys. You know, they're inspired by... Um, I don't know if Rambo was out at the time, but <laughs> no, that's too early, but let me cut that. Uh, but I, they think they're these tough guys, right? Like they're these macho military guys. Well, yeah. And look, the truth is, um, I have a story about Charles Zing, which we'll talk, we'll talk about on the Patreon. He thought he was a tough guy until, you know, he met this one guy 
and I, I'll give you kind of a little bit of a, of a teaser, but look, all puppies think that they're wolves until they meet a real wolf, and then things change real quick. Charles Ning, tough guy with a gun, tough guy with the, you know, with a gun in his hand, with a knife in his hand, when he has somebody tied up. Not such a tough guy when it's another man you're facing and there are no guns. You know, they say, famously they say in prison, there are no guns in prison. Meaning that a tough guy on the street has a gun, he's really not a tough guy in prison because you have to face another guy. But he knew Kung Fu, Bill. Look, man, watching David Carradine on a freaking Kung Fu special every day does not make you a martial art expert, okay? <laughs> so, uh, d uh, from what I understand, Lake actually constructed this torture chamber. He really, you know, drew up the plans or whatever and, and had a... A vision of what he wanted this to be he didn't really just stumble onto it he he actually wanted to have a a dungeon and he made it right that's exactly right it was his fantasy and charles ing is his psychic now you have two people here you usually have a dominant and you have a submissive in this particular situation charles ing is as culpable as leonard lake but if you're looking at this in a, in a, in a perspective, a psychologist or a psychological perspective, Lake would be the dominant and Ming would be the submissive. But they're not, he's not submissive like he's taking orders from Lake. He's enjoying this. He's participating 100% because he wants to be there. However, personality-wise, Leonard Lake is the dominant. Yeah, he's got the whole vision that... He was obsessed with a movie, right? A movie where a guy kept a woman captive. Yeah, and then they found that book there as well as, as uh, a film that was attributed to that particular... Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's exactly right. So how do they start this? It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty daunting to hear what really happened because some of one of his first victims were um, this woman... Lonnie Bond, I mean this guy named Lonnie Bond and his girlfriend Brenda O'Connor. They actually had an infant son named Lonnie Jr. And they became victims right away. Uh, it's sad to hear this, but from court records and from what Charles Ning was going through through his trial, the men were usually killed pretty quickly as well as the infants. And then they held the women captive in these bunkers you know, raping, torturing them, killing them, psychologically torturing them and making them feel that they could get out and perform for them. And when they got tired of them, they would brutally assault them and kill these women. Um, so their primary focus was women. However, they also abducted complete families. And they're recording, what, all of this or some of it or most of it on video cassette? Yeah, they, they recorded a number of the, the women that they tortured. There's a couple of videos that were surfaced. One of them was um, a woman, you know, crying and being raped. And Charles Ng is heard telling her, you know, you might as well cooperate. We're not good people or something to that effect. You know, we're just not good people, so you might as well cry. And then not long after, there is a scene in the movie where that woman is being assaulted brutally and it's pretty obvious she didn't survive the assault. So these guys here are just, um, you know, for lack of a better word, and I'm just going to say what it is because, you know, I usually speak my mind. And these guys are scumbags. And these are the kind of guys that, um, you know, you can pick them out in a crowd. At least I can. From just looking at them and seeing how they act. Uh, Charles Ng is a piece of garbage. Leonard Lake was a piece of garbage, and you know it's it's unfortunate that they Charles Ng gets to live for years with medical, dental, and everything that he needs on death row, getting packages and visits and everything else. And um, he was torturing infants, um, and that really sets me off because you know when it comes to kids, you know they're untouchable to me. You don't touch kids, and these two guys 
tortured and murdered infants. Yeah, and, and it's so, hmm. in terms of how they get apprehended finally, so he's killed his brother, and I think usually you start looking at the family as soon as that happens, but I don't know, a lot of this stuff is just seems like you write it off as it was a long time ago. Uh, and Ning is also a kleptomaniac. He's He steals a 70-pound a vice grip from a hardware store. I mean, obviously, I think we know what they're going to do with that. Uh, but then uh, Lake also kidnaps his neighbor who they hated because I think he was shooting guns a lot. This was just a guy who kind of had a little ranch with his child and, and wife and they're kidnapped. So this isn't sustainable, right? They're going to get caught here pretty soon. I'm surprised it went on as long as it did though. Well, yeah. So the, the, the street symposium when law enforcement got hip to what they did um, was December, 1982. And this is before, this is Lake by himself. And he does kidnap his own brother, but it's it's not a, a kidnap. He tells me once he wants to go on a road trip up north, and asks his brother to come along. Um, his brother's a nice guy, um, but you know he's basically you know he's referred to as as a leash, and that's what Leonard calls him. And then his mother reports him missing, but Leonard. Suddenly surfaces on New Year's Day in 1983 and rents a room in Golden Gate Park under his brother's name, using his ID. So it makes it pretty obvious what really happened. He killed his brother. And then shortly after, on May 22nd, 1983, you know, he kills Charles Gunner, who's a former post uh, postman. He's a drama uh, coach. And he's also the best man at, at, at Lake's wedding. So... He's also a guy that has survival skills. He's into the, the weaponry and all that kind of world. But he, again, asked this guy to go to a road trip. And this is how he, he um, you know, he brings them along. He tells them to celebrate my divorce. And sure enough, he kills him. And then he tells that guy, Charles Gunner's daughters, uh, hey, your father just met a woman and ran off. And he's never seen again. So it's like, it's all this going on, and it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like building, but as I said before, I believe that it started way before that. I believe that when it comes to this, these guys don't just start killing. Leonard Lake, with his obsession with pornography and the things he is doing, there are cases that are probably not reported where he raped, tortured, and maybe even killed women. Because, as I said before, serial killers usually work their way up. And this, I think, is the same case with Leonard Lake. You know? Thank you for using Global Tail Link. Hey, man. Hey, so, yeah, I'm interested in this. What would possess a serial killer to kill their best friend, a guy who was... Uh, it seems like they were actually friends at some point. I know they kill family members a lot, but there's a lot going on. It's complicated with familial relations, but is that common that they would actually kill someone they were, I don't know, that they were actually friends with? Well, I, I don't think it makes much of a difference. With these type of guys, it's what they need. It's about what they want. It really isn't about who the person is. Um, in this case, he, he basically was killing people he knew. Um, one of the guys that he killed was Jeffrey um, Astor, and he's from Sunnyvale, California. He disappeared in April of 1984. But his late model Honda pops up right next to Lake's home. And then when Charles Ng joins the party, it's really interesting, and we're going to talk about this on the Patreon because we I do have a few tidbits that are... They're going to raise some eyebrows. So in in July of 1984, uh, a man by the name of, I'm going to mess up his last name because you know I'm horrible with names. His name is Donald Gioletti. He's a radio personality from San Francisco. And, you know, he's he lives there. He's 
an openly gay man. He lives with another man by the name of Richard Carraza. And this guy, Giletti, places a personal ad. And look, remember the key here. These personal ads, these guys seem to be searching these personal ads. Charles Ng, answer one for Per Lake. Now they're looking again in these papers. So he places an ad in the paper and he's offering to give oral sex to straight men. And who answers the ad? Charles Ng. And he just walks up to the door and, and I think that this isn't 100% true. It isn't 100% true because it's almost too perfect that Charles Ng pulls up here and according to the reports in his trial and everything, he just pulls out a pistol and shoots this guy in the head and kills him at close range. The, his partner, Carraza, who was living with Giletti, the opening gay man, who's obviously his, his roommate is gay as well, he runs out of the back, uh, the, the back room into the study where he sees his partner dying or dead and Carraza's immediately shot in the chest and left for dead. And of course, they call 911 and they identify an Asian man with glasses as the shooter, which we know is Charles Nick. Okay, the reason I say that maybe it's a little bit untrue is because I don't believe that Carraza wants to smut up his, his dead friend. Um, I believe that Charles Ling went in there. I believe that he probably received oral sex, and then he decided to kill the guy. It didn't happen the way it said. And again, as a student of human behavior, um, this guy's covering for his partner. I, I can't see any gratification on Charles Ning's part by walking in as soon as he sees a guy shooting him in the head and then kills the other guy. Where's the gratification? This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. Where is the sexuality? Where are all the things that are in his uh, acts in the near future, which are the torture, to kill, to bond, to rape? All these things are not there. So I believe that that story was changed. Yeah, that would make sense. Right? Yeah. So, man, this is hard. So, from the time that Ning answers this personal ad until they are caught, how much time passes here? Well, it's only about a year and a half. They're, they're really... The, the last victim that they have is... April 19, 1985, it's, um, that's the last victim that they know about. Um, but because he, um, this clown is caught shoplifting on June the 2nd, 1985. So their spree didn't last a whole lot, about a year and a half. But in that time, they killed about anywhere between 20 and 25 people. The um, official number is 11. But they found a lot of other bones scattered. They found graves, but they really couldn't pinpoint exactly um, what the people were, who they were, because you really can't identify people by bones. Now, of course, we can because of DNA. In 1985, that did not exist. It was still several years in the future from people being able to be identified through just the DNA. So Ning is a notorious obsessive kleptomaniac and i'm assuming that just like with serial killers how it starts with small animals and then it ramps up you know he's caught stealing a 70 pound piece of equipment what how could you put a 70 pound piece of iron or steel underneath your shirt and walk out of a place this this is uh I don't know if it's escalated or or if he's trying to get caught or what. But uh, can you talk about no, the? He's not trying to get caught. Yeah, he's not trying to get caught. This guy thought he can get away. He's a, like I say, he's a freaking retard. Charles right. Ming is a freaking moron, and it's what gets them caught. I mean, they went on a spree. Let me just tell you this real quick. So, on July twenty fifth, nineteen eighty five, he murders Harvey Dobbs. Deborah Dobbs and their one-year-old son, Sean Dobbs. 
okay? They were from San Francisco, California, and Harz was selling video equipment. And he places an advertisement in a local newspaper. Of course, someone rings the doorbell, and we know it's these clowns. And they said two men were interested in the items because Deborah was on the phone speaking to a friend on the same date. And the doorbell rang. Suddenly, once she hangs up, they are never seen again. Uh, one of Dobbs' family neighbors saw an Asian man leave the residence. And then a man identified himself as Jim Bright calls up Harvey Dobbs' employer shortly after and tells them they moved to Washington. Now, we know that's not true because video equipment that the Dobbs were actually selling that they put place the ad in the newspaper was found at the freaking house in the lake, lake house near the bunker. So obviously he killed the family. On October 1984, Randy Jacobson, 36 of San Francisco, disappears again. He became involved in a business deal with Lake. He's murdered. The next one, November 2nd, 1984. Paul Costner, he's 40 years old, San Francisco resident. Costner had an advertised vehicle for sale in the newspaper. And again, a guy pulls up, asks to look at the car, he disappears, uh, Paul Costner disappears, and of course we know then that the car is actually the car that um, Lake has when he's arrested. So we can, by this we know he's the one who killed him. And, and it just continues. Um, another man by the name of Clifford, uh, Parentu, he's 23 years old, he's employed at the Dennis Moving Company. And his co-workers say that he knew Charles Ng and he had an argument with him and he's never seen again. So it's, it's like a pattern with these guys. They know who these people are. They understand that Charles Ng is not there completely. They argue with them and suddenly him and his buddy come over and they, they make these people disappear. And it's like I said, a lot of men, Jeff Gerald, another man from San Francisco, he worked by day with Ning as a mover. And he vanishes right after um, saying he's going to help Ning move to a different location. So look, th these guys are really on a tear. Kathleen Allen, she's 18, and her boyfriend, Michael Carroll, they go missing from a motel where they were temporarily leaving. Everybody knows that they also had a relationship with a bearded man that kept meeting him in the parking lot. And then Alan, the man, I mean, I'm sorry, the woman, appears in videotapes found at Lake's home. The paycheck she made was found at the cabin. Um, look, these guys were really bad guys, but they also liked to bring in men. This wasn't like everybody believes, and all the experts that I've listened to, and the court testimony, there is a hidden gem here that people don't want to talk about. Yes, they stole things from men. Yes, they, they killed for pleasure. Yes, they raped. But when it came to men, their only objective was not to steal identities, and their objective was also not just to steal their property. There was something much more sinister going on here, which we're going to talk about. So let's talk a little bit about the arrest and how they got busted, because you brought it up. Charles Ng is caught ripping off a vice. Uh, and look, what is he going to do with that vice? We know he's going to do the vice. He's going to use it to torture people. And, um, you know, he gets arrested. He runs off, and Lake shows up to pay for the vice. But here's where everything goes south, Matt. Do you want to fill us in on what happened here? Because these clowns are really bad. Yeah, this gets... Uh... Yeah, why don't you go ahead? <laughs> okay, so, look. Lake pulls up and offers to pay for the vice. But by the time the cops have showed up, they're there. They know something's up. And what does is, what is Lake do? He gives them a driver's license. And it's not him. It's Robin Scotch Stapley, 
the San, the San Diego man who was already missing by his family several weeks earlier. So Lake's arrested immediately. They go to his car, which is a 1980 Honda Prelude, and it's, and it's identified as the car that he changed license plates. It's actually Shipley's car. So he, he, he's just making mistakes because these guys don't know what they're doing. Once they get caught, they don't know what they're doing. So he gets arrested. And by this time, Charles Ng has disappeared. He's run off. But what he does is, when they arrest him, Mini Lake, he grabs, I guess he, being a, a doomsday prepper, he had a cyanide capsule sewn into his jacket. Now look, I don't know what freaking clown James Bond movie this guy was watching, but he takes the pill and obviously he dies. He dies. Yeah, he had the cyanide tablet on him, and I guess he's the type of guy that would know where to get cyanide. I wouldn't know how to procure it. But, uh, God, is that typical? I feel like usually that takes some courage to take a cyanide capsule. Yeah, I mean, look, this guy, like I said, he's a survivalist. He probably carried one all the time. He thought he was really cool. It's like having a freaking Batman outfit underneath your clothes, and you think you're Batman. This guy was twisted. So, look, they go to the, they go to this house where he's living, and can you hear this guy yelling in the background, or I got to tell him to shut the fuck up? You can hear it a little, but it's not that big of a deal. Okay. All right, so they obviously, they go to the, the lake, and by now the San Francisco Police Department homicide lieutenant, Gerald McCarthy, is now on scene, and he knows something's going, so they go to the property, and... Uh, Wilseyville, and they find Sipley's truck and Bond's car and the dungeons there. They find makeshift burial sites. They find 40 pounds of burning crushed human bones and fragments. There are a minimum of 11 bodies on the property. Two bodies are later identified as Bond and Sipley. They have been gagged and executed. They found a hand-drawn treasure map leading them to buried five-gallon buckets containing all sorts of ID, personal possessions, you know, victim uh, bones. It's just a treasure map. And then, let me call you back. Yeah, so they, they also find these handwritten journals in Lake's handwriting from 1983-84. They find the famous two videotapes documenting their torture of Brenda O'Connor and Deborah Dubs. And actually, in one of the tapes, as I mentioned earlier, you know, Ning is telling O'Connor, you can cry and stuff like the rest of them, but it won't do you any good. We're pretty cold-hearted, sore to speak. And then the other doves is being assaulted severely. Um, the evidence is there. So it doesn't take long for law enforcement to figure out what has happened, what's going on. And then Lake's wife, this woman named Carolyn Belize or Belaz, begins to cooperate with the investigators. And she gets, of course, immunity. And she turns over weapons, other material to authorities during the investigation. She's called as a key witness in Ning's trial. But there's no Ning. Ning is on the run. They can't find him. And as I said before, he is not an American citizen. He's a British Hong Kong guy. So he actually um, crosses the border and he goes into Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And again, here we go again. He's fucking shoplifting. And one of the guards sees him, tries to arrest him, and he shoots and wounds the guard. And this is 1985, where he had to serve four and a half years there. And then what this clown does, because now they know who he is, he's in the videotapes, they know who Charles Ng is, they're looking for him, then he begins to fight extradition from the United States on the grounds that he would be subject to capital punishment. And since um, Canada has a law that they will not allow someone to be executed, um, the extradition to California 
actually is allowed to go through. Canada doesn't want nothing to do with this creep. When the United States picked this guy up, um, he is charged with the kidnaps, rapes, and murders of 12 people. And ultimately, he's convicted of 11, uh, six men, three women, two male infants, and um, he is sentenced to death, where I got to meet and talk to this clown. Now, as I've said a number of times, I don't enjoy talking to these people, but I believe it was a service matter. I needed to get to the heart of the matter. I needed to know more about these men than than meets the eye. Uh, There's a lot of experts out there, so-called experts. They give you all this mumbo-jumbo about serial killers, and they're completely wrong. Sure, they get some things right because you're reading trial transcripts, and we know that some of the stuff they're saying is true. But their theories on why these guys kill and what they're doing is completely off. And that's a big uh, deal with Ning. They were very off on what Ning was about and what Charles and what was, uh, Lake was about. They killed men, they killed women, they killed infants. But these guys were not just about the women. They were not just about uh, the torture and control of women. There's more that meets the eye here, which we're going to get into in in the Patreon, but Charles Ng spent, and still there, he's actually still on death row at San Quentin, he still goes out to a protective custody yard, and he's a piece of garbage. And the thing you said earlier that, you know, he's a kung fu expert, that is absolutely false. He is a freaking pussy is what he is. So how well did you know Ning when you were on death row together? I knew him very well because, as I mentioned, I was the IDAP worker on the protective custody IDAP yard, that, which is Inmate Disability Assistant Program. I assisted people that needed help for people that were mobility impaired, that were hearing, which the warden of San Quentin put me on there. And I got to know him very well. My yard was right next to yard four, which was the yard that Charles Ng was on. And I watched him for years, decades. The guy's a clown. Forget all that kung fu stuff you heard. And, you know, I'll tell you why. (laughs) In the circumstances, while we know this kung fu stuff's all bullshit. So we're going to hear about that on part two, which you can find on... Spotify or Anchor, I believe they're the same thing, and on Patreon at Death Row Diaries. So we will pick that up. So we'll pick that up next time. And until then, I've been Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nagara. Be safe, be aware of your surroundings, your life can depend on it. We'll see you next time. <laughs>